people have gone to prison for the Clintons and not and clammed up, won't talk, you know. So there's got to be some kind of hold, some kind of Arkansas mafia machine that they brought to Washington with them. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty Leapfroggers, to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. As always, your home. For the greatest conversations. Yes, not just great. The greatest conversations, I'm going to say it, about the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 257, which means you can find the show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 257. Today we are sponsored by Health Excellence Select. And guys, with the open enrollment period coming up, many of you have major health care decisions to make we want to help make it a little bit easier on you. So why not check out a great free market alternative to your standard Obamacare insurance by heading over to lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is a comic book writer best known for his work on characters such as the Punisher and Batman in the 1990s. He co-created the character of Bane, infamously known for breaking Batman's back in a storyline recreated in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy of movies. His most recent work is the graphic novel adaptation of Peter Schweizer's book, Clinton Cash, which breaks down all of the political machinations of Bill and Hillary Clinton in regards to the Clinton Foundation. I am pleased to welcome Mr. Chuck Dixon. Chuck, are you ready to roar? I am indeed ready to roar. All right. That's what we like to hear, Chuck. And, and you know, we're going to get into your work on, on Clinton Cash, obviously, a bit later. That's something a lot of people in our audience are going to be interested in. But first, we're going to get a little nerdy because I grew up reading comic books in the 1990s. I was absolutely obsessed with Batman right at the time that you were writing that character. So I want to start by talking a little bit about your comic book career. And so how did you first become passionate about writing and how did that lead you into a career in comic books? Well, I've, I've always loved comics. Even before I could read, I, I would read comics, uh, you know, look at the pictures and everything else. So they've been with me as long as literally as long as I can remember. And I've always been fascinated with the media, the ability to tell a story in a series of static pictures. It's, it seems like such pure storytelling. And um, so from there, it was, you know, just uh, a matter of doggedly pursuing a career. Uh, going to interview after interview and submitting pitch after pitch, getting shot down over and over again. But I just simply didn't give up till, you know, I got full-time professional work. How does that process work when you go from someone who's never had a, a comic book published, who is just, are, do you just kind of write scripts on your own and send them off to people? Do you write pitches? Are you basically just pounding on doors? I mean, how do you actually break through? I imagine it, it can't be easy. Well, what I used to do is go to the conventions. This is when editors went to the conventions, and you could meet the editor. I never pitched at a convention, but I would have conversations with them, uh, and then hopefully they would remember me when I called back and asked for an interview. They'd grant the interview, and that's when I would pitch, and that's when they would you know, crush my dreams, and I would go <laughs> home and lick my wounds and then come back six months later and try it all over again. So it's really just about being persistent, just like uh, any other line in the work. you got to network. you got to meet people. you got to – get them remembering your face and your name. And eventually when that opportunity does come up, you're kind of maybe on the tip of their minds. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta be, you know, you gotta be the guy they think of in that five second spot when somebody says, Hey, who do you have for this? Wow. There was that guy that that's been annoying me at these conventions. Maybe I can call him. (laughs) Go. There you go. That's how it's done. That's great. And and how did you find yourself getting to work on such major well-known characters, such as the Punisher and eventually Batman? 
Well, I I, uh, I I proved my reliability early on working at Eclipse Comics and at Marvel. You know, I had uh, developed a, a group of editors who had faith in me, and uh, they helped me build my reputation by spreading the word. This guy's reliable, you know, and he's flexible, and you know, he's easy to work with. And uh, the Punisher, I campaigned hard for. I went out, you know, <laughs> I, I I kind of. Um, got Mike Barron mad at a few times because I kept trying to take his job away from him. Uh, but I kept pitching to the editor of Punisher until finally he, he let me have some issues. Batman was another story. Uh, Denny uh, O'Neill, the editor on Batman, just sort of reached out of the cold for me. Uh, he had read my work on another title and uh, wanted to see what I would do with Robin the Boy Wonder and uh, brought me on for a miniseries. And I just didn't go away for 11 years. And next thing you know, you find yourself wrapped up in what became really one of the, the biggest Batman storylines, uh, I think at this point we can say of all time, when introducing the character of Bane and the breaking of Batman's back and, and taking him essentially off the shelf for a, for a year or so. So how did that idea come up? Was that something you were involved in, in the creation of, or did that come from, from above, from DC Editorial? How did that whole thing come together? Because that's right when I started reading comic books. Right when I started reading, suddenly you, you see Superman die and you see Batman back break and you're just thinking what well, well everything i thought i knew about comics has now changed <laughs> well well denny came up with the framework for nightfall and that's the stunt in which batman you know got his spine injured to the point where he couldn't be batman and bruce wayne could no longer be batman and would be out of action for a year or more and uh denny came up with the the template for it the framework uh he and um i believe his assistant editor at the time was kelly puckett and they uh, presented it to us at a, at a bat summit. They took us away to a retreat and presented it to us and everything was there. All the dramatic high points, everything that you love about nightfall was there from the beginning. We just had to basically dramatize it and break it into issues, uh, you know, create a logical, um, dramatic through line for it and create Bane and, you know, all the rest of it. But, you know, it was solid from day one and we were all so enthusiastic to get to work on it because it was such a it's a good Batman story, and it's epic, and you know people responded to it in an enormous way. Yeah, and nowadays it seems like, I mean, Batman didn't die, but it, nowadays it seems like major events happen with characters all the time, and they're so forgettable. You know, you get a character dying one week, he's back the next week, it's it's a big hype machine, but this was actually a, a well-built, well-thought-out storyline. I, I don't feel that this was done just simply for the hype and shock of, of breaking Batman's back. Obviously, that was kind of the hook, but there was a very well-crafted story in there, and I, I remember it very distinctly, because this is right when I was starting to read comic books, and, and right when I really started to get obsessed with it. And I was just enthralled by, by that whole idea. The idea that, that Batman could be physically taken out of action, but the idea of Batman can continue. And, and it's really shows you that the, this character of Batman is about more than just one person. It's about an idea. Really. It's about the idea of, of justice. Yeah. And, and, you know, going into this, Denny said that he didn't want this to be just a cynical marketing ploy. He he wanted this to be a great story. First and foremost, this was going to be a great story. And it is. I mean, it's perfect grist for, for a Batman story. And, uh, you know, he you know, and we were all down with that. We, we didn't want to just do some cheap stunt, you know, to get attention for a few months. We really wanted to build up two years of classic Batman continuity surrounding this event. What's been your favorite character to write over the years? Is it, is it someone well-known like a Batman, like a Punisher, or is it maybe someone, a more obscure character that you've worked on over the, over your career? Well, strangely, the two characters I had the most affinity for writing couldn't be more different. I, I love writing Frank Castle, the Punisher. I really have an affinity for that character. He's the only character that I don't write for anymore that I still think of stories for. And the other character that was always very easy for me to write was Lisa Simpson. 
for some reason. Huh. <laughs> Those really could not be any two two more different characters. You're right about I, that one. <laughs> I have no idea what that says about me. <laughs> it says something. I'm not sure what either. But <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave that one to all the psychologists out there listening today. So, so obviously, I mean, you made your your name working on you know. I would call them, they're definitely controversial characters. Frank Castle's probably a controversial character uh, in the bubble of comic books, but to the mainstream public, there's nothing controversial about about writing a Batman book, writing a Punisher book, but there is something potentially controversial about being associated with something like Clinton Cash, something politically driven. So how did this project first get approached to you? How did you first get wind of this, this, uh, this book and the adaptation into graphic novel form? Well, Brett Smith, who's kind of the godfather of this whole project, he talked to people that he knew at Breitbart, and eventually we ended up at Regnery Press. And um, we, the, the deal was put together uh, with Peter Schweitzer's blessing, and, and later Peter Schweitzer's enthusiasm uh, for the project as he saw what we wanted to do. And uh, you know, just kind of put it together and uh, to, in order to reach a to, to make Peter Schweitzer's book reach a larger audience than it. You know, he'd already reached a huge audience. And, and still is reaching more people every day with with the book being more topical than ever. But but this reached a different audience and we broadened the base for the book. Do you what were your political, I guess, beliefs going into this? Did, did you have strong political leanings uh, against the Clintons? I, I imagine you couldn't have been huge fans if you would even consider taking on <laughs> taking on a project like this. But I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious what your your personal you know political philosophy was going into this project. Well, as Brett Smith assured Breitbart, I was the only guy in comics writing professionally who, who could write this because I'm a lifelong conservative. And, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I handed out uh, yard signs for Barry Goldwater when I was a little kid. So I, that's pretty lifelong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I go way back. My bona fides are there. But yeah, and, and I don't really care for the Clintons that much. And, you know, I was already aware of a lot of the stuff they did, far more aware after working on this book. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was the guy for the job in, in this case. So, I mean, we, we don't need to go through every single story that you, you break down in the, in this graphic novel, but I'm kind of curious about what, what stood out to you? What was one of the most shocking things that you learned, um, doing the research? Obviously you read Peter Schweitzer's book, but, uh, you know, what, what are some of the most shocking events that you learned about the Clintons even going in as somebody who knew, uh, generally about their, their level of corruption? Well, the the most topical one right now is is the Clinton's relationship with the Russian government and with Vladimir Putin, because you know we're seeing a lot of stuff in the mainstream press about some you know bizarre fantasy land connection between Donald Trump and the Russian government, where they're going to help him win the election. And when in truth, Hillary Clinton's been doing business with Russia from the beginning. As Secretary of State, she allowed. Rosatom, which is a Russian government agency in charge of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy, she allowed them to get a mining stake for uranium in the United States of America. So we have a Russian government agency digging up, you know, a, a mineral that can be weaponized for nuclear weapons inside of our borders. And this is and not really a, a private company. It is a company, but it's a company directly operated by the Russian government, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's a Russian government agency, you know, and in exchange for this, the Clinton Foundation was given their biggest payout, $145 million by a Canadian mining consortium who gave it to them as a, basically a, a reward because Ross Adam bought out all of the uranium mining concerns in North America for share price plus a dollar per share. 
So, you know, people were made even richer overnight by this deal and rewarded the Clintons in turn. And of course, lots of speaking engagements for Bill Clinton in Canada and Russia. So you, you say a figure like that, like $145 million. Can you break down a little bit how how uh, how some kind of, I guess you can't really call it anything else besides a bribe. How does a, a, a sum of money that large get transferred over to the Clintons and, and, and legally, I guess, or maybe it's not legal, but but I mean, how is there how does this kind of thing happen? We're, we're, in, a, we're in a current you know, political climate where there's outrage over the idea of anyone donating. I think our, our campaign limits as individuals are something like twenty five hundred dollars, the most we're allowed to give to a political candidate. So how, how does a sort of a payoff like this just go through at the level of that one hundred and forty five million dollars seems an awful lot bigger than what the average citizen is allowed to send to a politician? Yeah, even broken down into increments from the various companies in the consortium, it's still enormous checks. I mean, it's, you know, six and eight figure checks. It, how is it done legally? It isn't done legally. The, the Clintons promised uh, the American people when when Hillary became secretary of state and they promised Barack Obama personally that they would not, they would disclose any foreign donations to the Clinton Foundation. And this one hundred and forty five million dollar grab is one of the ones they concealed from everybody you know, until, you know, it was revealed. But, you know, they've basically lied to, to everyone, you know, uh, you know, their allies, as well as their enemies, as well as journalists, as well as the State Department, you know, in hiding exactly what the Clinton Foundation is worth and how much they get. But this is typical of their foreign money deals, which is why Peter wrote the book, you know, to expose this, because it just wasn't a story being covered by the media. To me, it seems like the biggest way that the Clintons, at least how they take direct payments, are are through speeches, because those are technically, I believe, unrelated to the foundation. It's just Bill Clinton gets hired to do a speech. It just happens to be a speech put on by some foreign government or some company who's made some deal with the Clinton Foundation or or that has gotten access through Secretary Clinton at the time that she was Secretary of State. So uh, would, what, would you say that's the, that's the primary way the Clintons take personal income through all these sort of deals that they're making? Not really, because they practically live off the Clinton Foundation. I mean, their travel expenses go into the tens of millions of dollars a year. I mean, these people are not flying coach and staying at the Holiday Inn. They, and, and these travel expenses come out of the Clinton Foundation. Also, there's 350 or more full-time employees of the Clinton Foundation who basically are all personal assistants for the Clintons. They, they work at the bidding of the Clintons. So the Clintons have a staff, travel expenses, and who knows what else paid for through funds that end up in the Clinton Foundation. You know, they, they soak up a lot of money. There's a lot of overhead there. So essentially they can use this foundation as as their source of income. Maybe they're not taking a direct check from it, um, but but when they're going around the world, every single expense comes from some element of that foundation. Yeah, let's face it. They don't have to worry about money. No, I think you know, okay. it, it, yeah, yeah. When they call for pizza, they don't have to worry about how many toppings they can put <laughs> on it. You know, the, the money's there. So it's a slush fund for, for them that they can use. And they can say, well, we were on, you know, Clinton Global Initiative business or Clinton Foundation business. And we, you know, hired that private jet to fly us to that five-star resort. Another really fascinating story that that I found in this graphic novel uh, was was their relation to India and and the nuclear weapons in India. I mean, I, I in, back in the nineties, I believe it was uh, India developed nuclear weapons against the non the nuclear non proliferation treaty, which they were not a part of. And uh, obviously, other governments like the United States were outraged. Uh, but over time, over the last ten years or so, that outrage has turned into uh, essentially cooperation, and, and the Clintons were a big part of that. So, can you kind of briefly break down how some of that went down? 
Well, Hillary Clinton, you know, with her, her, you know, hippie college bona fides way back, you know, was no nukes, no nukes against any kind of proliferation, against any kind of increase in nuclear weapons around the world. Of course, that's her, as we know, she has a public and a private position. That was her public position. In private, she was willing to play ball with, um, you know, Indian, um, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires working for the Indian government to provide waivers to allow the Indian government to develop, you know, more nuclear weapons. So India has 40 more nuclear missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles today than they did before Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. So all of this was waived. And in a lot of cases, the, the money was passed throughs from these uh, these Indian, these private citizens in India to the Clintons. I mean, one guy gave the Clinton Foundation $5 million, which it turned out was his entire net worth. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that Chatwall character. I'm not sure how, how to pronounce it. Chatwall, Chatwall. And, and that I really found that really interesting because this is a guy who ended up smoozing with the Clintons, basically became a, a, one of their close associates. Uh, he's also connected with the Indian government. And the, the question needs to be arise there. He gave them $5 million. That was his entire net worth. Uh, the guy's not homeless right now. So where did all that money come from? You have to wonder. Exactly. Yeah, it's all very shady. And he was really cozy with them. I and mean, he visited them in Chappaqua. He was at Chelsea's wedding. You know, uh, you know, he he had Bill over to India for all kinds of events. So, you know, they were really chummy. You know, and in the end of it, uh, we end up with a, uh, a, a an imbalance of power once again in, in that region. And what's really interesting about this guy, too, is he actually uh, came under investigation and he actually pled guilty for bribing and he pled the bribe that he pled guilty to was to the clinton foundation yes <laughs> which yes. is just mind-blowing so there's actual court evidence that the clinton foundation took a bribe but there's no actual prosecution about them for that there's only the prosecution against this one guy yeah yeah it's like it, it's always one-sided people will go to jail for dealing with the clintons but the clintons never go to jail for being a part of the same deal i, I i'm not sure how that works except I go back to what Al Gore said when he got caught taking envelopes of money from Buddhist nuns. He said, there's no controlling legal authority. In other words, I broke the law, but there's nobody with the cojones to do anything about it. Right. Because who knows? The Clinton body count. It's a Google term for a reason. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, they, they, they left the White House with FBI files on probably everybody in Washington. So, you know. Everybody's got something to hide, I guess. Do you think that is really the key to the Clintons' power? Because when you see everything that's out there about these people, I mean, you can pick any angle to go off of. You can you can look at Bill Clinton and his uh, sexual assault allegations and uh, how Hillary treated people then. You can look at the, this very obvious corruption within the Clinton Foundation. I mean, you guys only scratch the surface in Clinton Cash, at least in the in the graphic novel. I mean, I, I know there's so much out there about this and even more coming out to this day uh, when it comes to WikiLeaks. So, I mean, how do does a couple like this maintain such power? Is it just come to the, uh, the amount of information they have on other people, uh, to their connections, to, to people at high levels in the government? I mean, it's, it's incredible to me how, how people so transparently corrupt can maintain such power, but not only such power, such such reverence. I mean, the, the media continues to hate, heap praise upon these people as if they are some of the most revered figures in American history. And sadly, they, they are some of the most revered figures, uh, at, least, <laughs> at least in modern history. Well, it what astounds me about the Clintons, I think more than anything else, they've been doing this stuff for decades, decades. I mean, you know, and there's never been a John Dean. There's never been anyone to step forward and say, hey, this is really rotten. You know, the closest we get is Dick Morris, you know, and 
and there's nobody, nobody's ever blown the whistle on them. And I think this is a combination of fear. You know, they'll ruin you. They'll, they'll go out of their way to ruin you. And also reward. If you're loyal to the Clintons, they'll make you wealthy. You know, they'll, they, I mean, how many ex-Clinton administration people ended up at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and walked away with tens of millions of dollars in bonuses? And what a great job they did, right? But they walked away with, you know, rewards basically for, for their loyalty. And, and people have gone to prison for the Clintons and, not, and clammed up, won't talk, you know. So there's got to be some kind of hold, some kind of Arkansas mafia machine that they brought to Washington with them. So basically, the Clintons have some some really big carrots that they dangle, some big, juicy, succulent carrots out there for people that are on their side, and some uh, big, scary-looking sticks that they're waving at anybody that might might kind of turn their back on them. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's run like the Sopranos. Well, Chuck, something else that's currently run like the Sopranos is our healthcare system. So I need to take just a quick minute out to tell our listeners about a great alternative from our friends at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full-service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440 Four nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Uh, you know, one other story that, that kind of um, is, is there throughout this graphic novel is is uh, in the background is is Haiti, and obviously there was a major earthquake there. You know, earlier this century, and uh, the the country still has not recovered at this point. But the Clinton Foundation was heavily involved in. Uh, I'm going to have to put some air quotes that nobody can see up in the quote unquote rebuilding of Haiti. So, and this is really just maybe one of the more shocking stories because just because of the fact that there's basically poor people behind this whole thing that are in desperate need, and they're just seemingly a background story to the Clintons profiting and, and making massive. Profits. So can you get a little bit into how how uh, how the disaster in Haiti, how that was turned into basically a massive revenue stream for the Clinton Foundation? Well, when the earthquake occurred, uh, State Department officials, you know, sent messages back to Hillary Clinton at the State Department saying that it was, quote unquote, a gold mine and, quote unquote, the soup, the uh, the Super Bowl of disasters. In other words, there was there was cash to be made. God, isn't that just sick that that people look at at human disasters? That's something that caused the deaths of of tens of thousands of people, and that's just at the initial event. Not even thinking about the the sanitation breakdown and and how many people might die of disease and starvation and, and thirst afterwards. And all these people are seeing is cash. Yeah, and the devastation to Haiti as a country, to its people and its economy is is going to last for decades from from this crowd showing up. They. You know, she immediately appointed Bill Clinton a special envoy to Haiti, and he he was he was he was the de facto president of Haiti for years because he had the money. He had more money to to lay out than the, the Haitian government, and part of it was uh, private money, 
but most of it was taxpayer money through USAID, you know, through the State Department. And they did things like they, they built a garment factory for a South Korean uh, garment company, you know, with taxpayer dollars and tax breaks. And then this company was supposed to provide, you know, tens of thousands of jobs. They provided perhaps 3,000. They were supposed to build housing. They didn't. They shipped a, a lot of the trailers that made people sick during Katrina. They shipped them down to Haiti and it made people sick again. Wait, um, even they, after they got even after they knew those trailers got people sick in Katrina, they sent them to Haiti. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, it's good enough for Haitians. You know, what, what are they going to do? Complain? And, and wow. seriously, the Haitian people have no voice in this. But they did other things that were devastating the economy. Like they brought in free water, which all sound, that sounds wonderful. We're going to bring you free, fresh water. But they killed what little bit of the economy in Haiti existed for companies inside Haiti, owned by Haitians, run by Haitians, that provided fresh water to the public. When that fresh water was no longer provided, those freshwater companies, private freshwater companies, were out already out of business. They had gone bankrupt. The same thing for eggs, uh, chicken, uh, vegetables, things like that. The, 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 the fragile economy of Haiti, made even more fragile by the earthquake, was crushed by charitable donations. Another one which is really egregious is uh, Bill Clinton promised to make Haiti the first wireless nation, which, okay, that's, that's a worthy effort. And they gave free cell phones to Haitian citizens. The problem is the minutes weren't free. The service is not free. Okay. And for that, he got his buddy Dennis O'Brien in, in, in Ireland, a telecom billionaire. He got him involved. So, so Dennis O'Brien has a, a monopoly over all digital communication in Haiti, which, yes, it's nickels and dimes. It's a poor country. But in the aggregate, it's worth billions over the years. And, and you know, this was all done in the uh, interest of helping the Haitians, but really they help themselves. Wow. And, uh, you know, Chuck, none of what we're talking about right now sounds uh, funny. <laughs> it sounds humorous because <laughs> uh, it's really not. It, it really, a lot of this is, especially when in regards to uh, what's happened to people in Haiti. But uh, I really did think you did a great job um, with this graphic novel adaptation and adding a lot of humorous elements uh, and making it feel like a really light read. I mean, I chuckled out loud a number of times, uh, despite the seriousness of, of these topics. So I'm curious, kind of, what was your process here? Were you sort of, were you sort of just free to adapt this book in any way you saw fit, or I mean, what? Because it's very clear here you do try to make this a, a fun and entertaining read uh, along the way here, along this process of of exposing these these very corrupt people. Well, reading the book, it reads like a, a, a detective story or a, a mystery story or a spy story. Uh, but as a comic adaptation, that wasn't going to work because the imagery would be repetitive. It's people getting in and out of cars, meeting in conference rooms, you know, <laughs> handing each other bags of money in the middle of the night, writing checks. That's not going to play not, as a not comic. Not the most compelling art, perhaps. No, no. So I, I really wanted to lean into the parody and the, and the satiric nature. And I wrote five sample pages for Peter of the direction I wanted to go in. And he enthusiastically agreed and let me and Brett and our team of artists go crazy with the material to find, you know, compelling visuals so that it would, you know, fully explain the principles he lays out and the patterns he lays out in the books, but also entertain and also stick in people's minds because they're going to remember those pictures they saw. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever forget the uh, the image in the book of, of Lady Gaga singing for, for Bill Clinton. I mean, <laughs> there, there's certain images in there you just can't get out of your mind. Yeah, my favorite one is the uh, the uh, the African dictator hunting giraffe from his golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, do you think that 
like th- this format, this medium, this graphic novel medium, do you think there's there's some hope that this this can be actually used to better communicate ideas out not outside just not just limited to great stories uh, like your your Batman tale, like your work on Punisher, but but like what you just did here with Clinton Cash to actually communicate political ideas. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the, the enormous success we've had with the graphic novel version would point to us doing more, and we're in talks to do more. We've been approached by a lot of people because the graphic novel format is an excellent way to explain really complex situations and really, you know, really lay it out in a way that's easily understood and easily digestible and, uh, and, and memorable. Because like I said, the pictures stick in your mind. So, I mean, obviously, it sounds like there might be more of this political work in the future, but I know what some people out there are kind of wondering. What myself, I'm wondering, do you have any plans to get back into mainstream comics? Do you have any plans to hook up with Marvel or DC again and, and get yourself uh, back on any of those those characters that you used to love working on, whether it's a Punisher or a, maybe Lisa Simpson? <laughs> I've started a project with one of the two major companies you named. Uh, it'll be out next year. So I am back. So I, know, I'm guessing a, this is something you bit. can't quite name publicly yet. If no, <laughs> I can't really talk about it. I can't really okay. talk about it. You know, I stay, I stay busy. I just completed a graphic novel for the United States Navy, uh, you know, and, and I write my own uh, novels available on Amazon. And, uh, you know, I do work on SpongeBob. I just got offered a job at Archie. So, you know, I stay busy in comics uh, quite a bit. But I look forward to doing more things like Clinton Cash as well. All right, well, Chuck, we're going to look forward to uh, all your work, whether it's more political stuff, whether it's more your your mainstream comic book stuff, and we'll, of course, link to uh, a lot of those works over at the show notes for today's show so people can check this stuff out. Chuck, I really do appreciate you coming on the show, spending some time with us, talking about Clinton Cash. Before I let you go, why don't you just point out um, how people can get in touch with you, whether it's uh, on social media. I know you're pretty active on Twitter, and uh, feel free to, to um, you know promote or anything else you got going on that you want to plug. Well, I got you know I've got a page, an author page on Facebook. They're they're welcome to look there, and uh, also you know just put my name in on Amazon. It'll show you like, I think almost thirty pages of publications I've done over the years in in comics and uh, in also in thriller novels. Well, guys, like I said, I cannot recommend highly enough checking out the graphic novel adaptation of Clinton Cash. It's a, an easy read. I read it in in the span of an afternoon, and it really gets across all the information that you really need to know about the Clinton. So it's a very effective book. And uh, Chuck, I want to encourage you uh, to keep up the great work. I know I, know I don't need to because I, I know you're out there uh, keeping busy on your own, but I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on here today and speaking to this uh, Liberty audience. Thanks for inviting me on, Mark. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Chuck Dixon. And I got to say, it was just kind of exciting for me. I love when some of my interests can come together on this podcast. I am a total comic book nerd. I grew up reading Chuck Dixon's Batman. So yeah, sure. I had a little other motivation to reach out for an interview with Chuck, but I have to say reading Clinton Cash, reading this graphic novel, this is a must read for anybody who is, I don't care if you're against the Clintons or not. You should be. You should be against corruption. You should be against using a third world country as your your personal gold mine at the behest of the citizens of that country, as they did in the case of Haiti. I mean, the level of corruption of the Clintons is so blatantly transparent that it's really, truly mind blowing that this is someone who may very well be the president in a couple of weeks. It's 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 shocking to me. And when you guys check out Clinton Cash and I highly recommend the graphic novel version perhaps even purchased through our link at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. Just a suggestion. If you read Clinton Cash, I think you're going to have a lot better time arguing with people 
not, not that it needs to be an argument. It could just be a conversation uh, about the Clintons, about the level of corruption. Even if this person is who becomes the president, I don't think the alternatives are much better. At least this way, we can hold her feet to the fire. And maybe she won't be able to get away as, with as much in office if more people are made aware of this stuff. Something else I hope you guys can help people become more aware of is this very podcast. If you are a fan of this program, the best way to help us out is to share this thing with a friend. Especially episodes like this where we don't get too deep into the nitty gritty of the philosophy. I feel like an interview like this with Chuck Dixon is something you could send to your Republican father, for example, who might already have some ideas about the Clintons uh, before they listen to this interview. It might not blow their mind away, but they might say, hey, oh, these Liberty guys, well, they're against the Clintons. Maybe I should keep listening to what they got to say. You never know how people are going to find their way towards the ideas of Liberty. But what we want to keep doing is advancing those ideas. That's why we do this program. That's why we're looking to expand what we're doing with this program. That's why we're looking to really amp things up in 2017 after we get through all this election mumbo jumbo. So I'm excited to have you guys a part of it. You can become even more of a part of it by joining our private Facebook group. That's the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just go ahead and type Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar on Facebook. Come on in. Join the conversation with myself and my other great Lions of Liberty cohorts. Many other fans of the show, even a few past guests, are in there poking around in the Lions of Liberty Forum. Always great conversations to be had over there, so be sure to come in. And as long as you don't look like a Nigerian scam artist, which we've had a few try to get in there, (laughs) as long as you look like a regular person, we're going to let you on in to join this conversation. My man John Odermatt is going to keep the conversation going this coming Friday with another edition of Felony Friday, his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. So be sure to tune back in for that. And until next time, kids, live long and live free.